If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 20, which I believe if you're going to use one of the Bibles in the back of the seat there, it'll be on page 1040, Revelation 20, 1 through 10. We'll get into that in just a moment. If you are new with us, today's sermon is going to be a bit unlike others. Um, so we've been in the middle of a series called Kingdom Come, and in that series, I've spent much of the time um, <clears throat> talking about, you know, what, what does that mean, really, uh, when Jesus tells us to pray that, um, to, the, to the Father and ask him that his kingdom would come on earth as, uh, and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, what, and so we've looked at sort of the, the historical movement of God throughout history and where this is headed. The tagline has been uh, understanding our present in light of God's future. So what is God going to do at the end? And in that series, I've really spent a lot of time uh, challenging you to not get caught up in the weeds, right? Um, so often when we get to discussing uh, the end times, we get sort of caught up on the details and the order of events, so much so that we miss the big idea, right? The big picture. And, um, and we get sort of confused. Instead of being led to worship, we get led to, like, con- confusion, and right? The theological fetal position because we just don't understand or we just push away. Um, and so I've been inviting you to really look at the big idea, the big picture, which is, and, and, like, God's goodness in the future for both us and this earth, right? This planet that we live on, which is glorious restoration, right? It's not... Crumble this whole deal up, throw it away, and we go and, and, and live forever in these, you know, this dis, uh, you know, disconnected body in heaven where we have spiritual you know, baby-like bodies floating around and halos and all sorts of things. And God just kind of crumbles this earth up and throws it away because it's sin and bad. Instead, the earth and its creation is good, and God is, is in the process of making it all new. And that's what the end will actually consummate is all of that being made new. And so I've encouraged you really to, to focus our attention on that and let that lead us to comfort and, and um, if we know Christ and to worship um, and to not get caught up in the details. However, it would still be my encouragement. However, some of the details, some of the questions are um, at the very least curious, right, um, and interesting, um, and then many of them are critical and important, um, to, the, to the point that it is difficult to sometimes read about the end times or to try to read, anybody ever just try to read Revelation straight up? It's head spinning, right? Like, I don't know about any of that, Lord. Like, I, that just was really, really super confusing, right? And we pick out a couple chapters that are great, but the whole book, we're like, eh, that's, that's, uh, we'll, we'll see. Like, God will just have to explain that one when we... We'll see it all unfold. And so it's difficult to not, to, to not get distracted by some of these details. And so I did want to spend some time just as, as the kind of the cap on this series, answering some of the frequently asked questions about um, eschatology, which is a fancy word for end times, right? The study of end times. And so that's what we're going to do today. So a few things before we start. Uh, the first of which is I'm not an eschatolog- eschatological scholar. I can't even say the word, so that just confirms that. All right, there are plenty of things that I don't understand and I'm not going to pretend to. So some of you may ask me a question after the service and I may simply say, I don't know. All right, I'm just not going to I don't pretend that I'm a scholar. The second thing I want you to know is that these are open-handed issues here at The Journey. Like none of the ideas discussed today are, are close-handed things, meaning uh, that, that you do not have to agree with us on everything presented uh, in order to have fellowship, be a member here, or I, I think even worship without distraction. So Here's what I'm really saying. We can disagree on these details and still be a, like, still be a church family and not get, like, we don't need to divide over this, right? And, and really, these won't even be major points of sermons in the future. Like, I, I just don't think it's even going to be a distraction. Like, the, the bottom line is, a lot of this stuff, there's not clarity over. And part of what I'm going to talk about is kind of giving you different views from different respected and orthodox um, evangelical options, because there's a lot of differing 
uh, views on uh, these topics that are all within the realm of orthodoxy that are okay, like that we don't have to, to divide over them. Um, and so, and then lastly, this will not be exhaustive, right? Like there's, there's a full semester, year-long courses plus some devoted to, um, to this topic, and this is going to be one sermon, so I don't pretend that we're going to cover everything by any means. We're going to be addressing a few things from a really high point of view and then moving on. So if you'd like to study more on any of this stuff, I've put a few resources on the app. If you go to This Weekend on the app, there's a few different resources on there. Um, There's a couple great books for you to look into and dive deeper. Also, for those of you that have an ESV study Bible, or if if you're looking for a a study Bible, ESV study Bible is a great resource. And there's a section in the back of that that is really succinct and accessible that doesn't get down into the weeds but does give you some great overview um, insight into this. So if you want to study, I'd recommend that. Also, if any of you own Grudem Systematic Theology, which is a big daunting book, but it breaks theology down into different chapters and sections, it's a good reference tool. And there are some chapters on um, the end times in there as well. So I would point you to those things that many of you have, or we would be glad to help you get. Um, for today, though, we'll address as many of these kind of FAQs as we can. And whatever point I'm out of time, we'll just move to our conclusion. And I'll make myself available for questions afterward for those of you that really get jazzed up and want to keep talking about this. I'm glad to. I like it, but um, we only got so much time. So let's, uh, let's look to Revelation chapter 20. I picked this chapter, even though we're going we're gonna to cover an array of, of topics and conversations today. I picked this chapter because it does bring up um, a couple of the more confusing or uh, debated issues around this topic. And so we're going to read Revelation 20, 1 through 10. And then, we, like I said, we'll talk about just kind of a variety of things. But let's start here. Um, and then real quick, but before we do it, Revelation itself is a prophecy, right? It's, 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 uh, so we have prophecy in the Old Testament, and we're kind of used to that. And there's, there's Daniel and Ezekiel and some other books have some really strange language that we must take as, you know, figurative. Okay, this is painting a picture of an earthly. And so we're kind of used to that. But then the, you know, the New Testament is about Jesus and his life. And then it's about Pat, like the apostles writing letters to the churches. Like that's most of the New Testament. So some of it's narrative, what happened in the early church, what happened when Jesus was there. And then it's letters written back to those churches. And then we have this book of Revelation, which is unlike any of the other books in the New Testament, really unlike any of the other books in the Old Testament. But it is like some in the Old Testament in this sense. And John tells us this, that he He's writing, he calls it apocalypse, like that's where the, the language comes from, like it's about the end time, and it, and it would, for, for the Jewish readers of this time, like that would be familiar language, meaning that it is um, a type of literature that they're, they're familiar with, right, that is, that is prophetic in nature, meaning this, that, that by definition, what this, this type of literature is, is symbolic visions, Okay, or dreams that are given to the author that reveal a heavenly perspective. Right? So symbolic visions or dreams that reveal a heavenly perspective on history, some things in the past, current events, and future. Right? So it's symbolic visions, dreams, things like that, that give a heavenly perspective to what is happening here on earth, whether that be in the past or in the future. So John makes it clear that that is how we are to understand this book. Right? Jewish apocalypse is, is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. So, okay, that's what John's saying, is this is symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret code to be unlocked about the timing of the end of the world. Okay? That is, that is where we're going to go really wrong, get really confused, or really wound up about stuff that we don't need to be wound up about when we think we can just put all this together and do some math. I know there were stories about, you know, like a NASA engineer several years ago that was pretty sure he had decided when Jesus was going to come back and the world was going to end because he did all the math. 
Like, not only did Jesus say, we don't know when that's going to happen. That, that's just not what Revelation is about, all right? So, it is symbolic imagery uh, and numbers that, that is communicating something particular, but it's not a secret code about the timing of the end of the world, all right? So, let's read this together, and we'll jump into some of the questions. So, <clears throat> Revelation 20, verse 1. And, and this is, John is getting these, these visions as he's exiled on Patmos. And this is what he says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might deceive the nations, or so that he might, might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been, been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Excuse me. Blessed are those, or blessed and holy are the ones who share in this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from its prison, and it will come out to deceive the nations that are other four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together to, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, beloved, and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. All right. So lots of fun stuff, just in a short amount of verses there. But... It's going to really, I read that again because it talks a lot about the millennium and the, and the beast and some, some frequently, you know, debated things. And so, but the first thing that we got to just get out of the way is when, right? When is this going to happen? When is Jesus coming back? Like we're going to talk about the how and some of those things, but when, right? When does this whole party or terrifying, like when does it start? When is Jesus coming back? And, the, and what you have to know, and Jesus says this very clear, like there's a lot of things that aren't clear about this. What is clear is Jesus says, you don't know because nobody knows. Okay. So we don't know when the the world will end. In fact, I think hopefully we spent most of the series explaining to you that the world's not going to end. Rather, it's going to be made new. But but as far as when does this whole deal um, start and when is Christ coming back, we don't know. He says this in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. In that moment, when Jesus is on earth, he's saying, like, I'm going to come back when, when God tells me to, like when this whole deal, like when my father tells me. So he, he's saying, we, we don't know. So that, you've got to know that. And then and that needs to give you some peace because, again, there are people that are going to try to put these together and they're going to have graphs and charts and weird, and they're going to write books. And, and they've done this all throughout history. It's kind of comical to look back over all the times that people were really sure that Christ was coming back, right? Uh, some of you have seen some of that. Some of you have just heard about it. But it's been several times where people have been really, really sure, and they've sold lots and lots of books convinced that Jesus was coming back. And the bottom line is, like, we shouldn't take those seriously because Jesus said, nobody's going to know. It's going to be like a thief in the night. Like, it, it will not, we're not going to know. So with that in mind, what order? What, how, does this, how does this go down? What, what comes first? And there, that's really sort of um, 
where we got to start some talking about some of the other things because there's all sorts of debates about this stuff. Again, that's what I said earlier. Like when you get caught up on the details and the order of details, you can kind of lose sight of the big picture. But we're, we're not going to we're going to keep the big picture in mind. We're going to look at some of those details. And so, what is the order? Again, the, uh, there's a lot of debates throughout history, and and a lot of it depends on how you interpret this passage that we just read, particularly talking about the millennium. Okay, so a lot of what you do with the different pieces that are confusing about the end time is determined by what you believe about the millennium. So the millennium is, is a thousand years, right? That's what the word means. Um, and um, it's really mentioned primarily, if not only in Revelation 20, but a lot of people have kind of ran with it and built out whole the- theologies on it. Um, but... It is there. We do need to deal with it. And how we deal with it is one of those areas where, again, there's three primary views and then some sub-views off of those three. But there's three primary views about how you look at the end times concerning the millennium. And, again, it answers questions about tribulation and rapture and um, beast and all sorts of other things whenever you sort of start here. And so just know this, that these three views are all accepted within traditional Christianity. There's been uh, great authors that most of you would recognize that have believed each of these. Um, And for me, I I have a particular view, uh, and I'll share that with you, but I'll try to give you a higher view of of all of them, and then you'll know which one I'm coming from, and that's that's okay. I tried to give you actually two different views to to look at from your app to uh, um, and so for me, there, there's, there's two that make more sense. That, there's one that doesn't make as much sense, and there's two that make uh, more biblical sense, and then there's one that I lean toward. And I kind of look at it as like this. There's a lot of pieces laying out here when you talk about the end times, and there's these three boxes. Which one can I get the most in, like, safely, without feeling like, well, I really, you know, just kind of forced that one. And for me, that's, that's uh, the one that I, I sort of land on. It's just sort of an imagery. But, but just know that there's, there's good people Pastoral, pastors that I've probably quoted in here that, have, that hold all of these three, particularly two of them. So here's, here's the big, you're going to learn lots of big words today. i got charts and graphs. So the first way that you look at the millennium is to believe that it is actual thousand years. And if you believe that, and so that's going to be two of the views. If you believe it's an actual thousand years that Christ is going to reign on earth, then you've got to, okay, is that going to be, um, does he come back pre-millennium or post-millennium? And those are two of the different views. So the first one is pre-millennium. We've got a chart here. And so what it's saying is that we're currently in the church age and that Christ is going to come back. And when he comes back, believers will be caught up with him in Christ. Uh, but then we're going to... So there's a, there's a delineation of this view where some we, we leave for the tribulation. We'll get to that in a second. But primarily, the big idea here is that Christ comes back before the millennium, and then there will be a thousand-year reign for Christ and his, and his people. It will reign on earth for a thousand years, and then at that point, the end of, of this age will, will, will come. The, the, all the dead will be resurrected. There will be final judgment, and the eternal state, the new heavens and the earth, will be initiated at that point. Point. So Christ is going to come back before the millennium. There's a, there's a quick subset of that called um, pre-tribulation on the next slide. Pre-trib, pre-millennial. We got that next one. So this one is a little more confusing, but here's what it's saying. We're in the church age now, right? We're in between the advents of Christ. Christ has come once, he's coming again. This one, though, is has sort of a a secondary second coming of Christ built in, which is one of the reasons I, I think it's the least biblically supported of these views. But um, 
But regardless, it's actually probably the most popular and common because of some books by Tim LaHaye and uh, movies called Left Behind. So the, 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 the theology that is, those are put out as Christian fiction, but a lot of people have let it shape their, their theology of end times, and it's really popular. It's, popular, like, it's popularized this belief. So what that means is they believe that Christ is going to come back before the millennium, and that he's going to take his people with him. So the first arrows going up there are believers. They're going to leave with Christ, that he's going to come back in this sort of secret or unknown coming. He's going to come part of the way to earth, and he's going to call all his people up to him. And that's where you get like the unmanned cars bumper stickers, right? Like in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned or whatever, right? Because the, the picture Jesus is going to come part of the way, and he's going to call all his church up, and everybody's going to fly up there that knows him. And, and it's going to have this moment of like, oh, like the rest people are left here are going to like, Oh, I guess I didn't, like, that was a real deal. Like, and you get this, church is gone, everybody's left. And then they believe that this tribulation of seven, will be a literal seven-year span where there's tribulation that comes um, while the church is, is with Jesus in heaven. And once that seven years is up, then Christ will come back with the believers and he will institute a thousand-year reign here on earth. And then we're back to the same thing of like, okay, after that, the resurrection of unbelievers, everybody who's ever died, the judgment will happen, and the new heaven and new earth will come to bear forever. Okay, so that's, that's sort of a subset of, pre, those are both premillennialism, meaning Christ is going to come back before the millennium, but then there's that subset of pre-tribulation, pre-millennial. You guys tired of that yet? Okay, so the next one is amillennialism. Ah just means none. Like it doesn't, so what, what and this is the view that I, that I will hold to, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit more why. Um, but meaning there's no, that, that the thousand years here is, is symbolic of an age, not of a, of a, it's not a literal thousand year millennium. So in this view, the church age right now where we are, like we're in the millennium, like the Revelation 1 through 6, what it described there, that that's happening now. That there's not going to be a, a, a literal thousand years that is marked by start and finish. Where Christ, but instead, it's talking about Christ reigning, right? That he ascended into heaven. He, re, he seated at the Father's right hand, reigning and ruling. And, and he'll do that until all of his kingdom is conquered. And Jesus says, all authority is given, uh, is, is given to me on heaven and on earth. Like, so he's, we believe he's reigning now. And, and those who um, have died, like that would kind of, the ones who... who who were martyred or who have died before, like they're reigning in, in heaven with him. And that's the church age. And, and really, it's the simplest of the charts because at the end of this age, Christ comes back. We have the, the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of unbelievers, judgment, and the new heaven and new earth all happens in a pretty succinct like period of time. There's not this staggered out ages. And then he brings in the new heaven and the earth. That's kind of the perspective I was teaching from when we went through Revelation 21, Although, again, this is not major, this is minor, this is secondary. Uh, this is all, like, all going to get to the eternal state, right? New heaven, new earth. That's all, like, we, we in agreement on that. It's just some of the details. And so, uh, this is, again, this is where I would, all meaning just, we don't believe there's an actual literal millennium. We believe it's more figurative, uh, describing the age, and that that age is actually now. And then the, the final view, um, which, again, there's three major views, the pre, ah, uh, and then post and, um, and then there's the subset of pre that we talked about. Uh, but of the three major ones, this is the one that I, I find most difficult to justify biblically. Um, but it is compelling, and it's sort of exciting. Um, and here's what it means. is like They believe there will be a millennium, but it won't be with Christ physically reigning. 
on earth. Instead, they believe that, that over time, things are going to get better and better. I, in, in, in one way to look at it, the gospel is going to gain um, increasing amount of power. And uh, I'll just read this. The, the view that the millennium will come through the success of the gospel, gradually converting the world and ushering in a golden age of the church. After a long period of peace and righteousness, there will be an outbreak of evil and Christ will come in person to win the victory. So they, they believe that there will be like a millennium. Some are literal on the thousand years, some are not. But they believe that over time, like that the world will sort of be made great again by the gospel coming, and there'll be a, a large Christian influence, right? Now, there's varying degrees about what they believe that'll be, if that's like Christians literally running all the governments or what, but basically it's this progressive, things are getting better than they were, and they're going to keep getting better until Jesus comes and finishes the job. It's sort of a, a really simplistic way to look at it. This is common in peacetime when things are going well. This was held by a lot of the early uh, Americans like Jonathan Edwards, when they're colonizing America, they're really excited about what the future holds, right? They've, they've busted out of the oppressive rule of England and what they've known, and they're going to start this, break, this new world that has this better government and this better system of life. And so a lot of them held to this, meaning that they believed that, the, that they were ushering in the kingdom physically like they were seeing it come to pass. And so this, this view kind of rises in popularity when things are going well and when there's wars and, and things are not going well. Fewer and fewer people sort of hold to this, um, but they, they would try to say that overall things are moving in the direction and, and accumulatively getting better, and that one day Christ will come back and, and finish the deal um, and then bring in the new heavens and new earth. So um, anyway, so those are the three major views. Good? Got all that? Ready to give a dissertation on it? There is one of the books I recommended, which is pretty academic, like most of you, like a lot of you are not going to, but the millennial maze is going to, it's, it's recommended there on your, your app. And it's going to just spend time talk, like unpacking all of these things, right? Where do each of these get their justification? What are the challenges with them? What are the, 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 uh, the big ideas of them? The, the positive about that one, post-millennial, is that they really believe the power of the gospel, right? And it encourages the sharing of the gospel. And so that's, there's, there's positive and negatives to each of them. But, but, but here's, so... Again, how you categorize those things answers some of the rest of the questions. So as we move into other questions like rapture, that is going to be defined primarily by which of those uh, first three things that we sort of talk about. So the, the rapture idea that Christ is coming back to, to get his church and then there'll be a tribulation is really only validated by, as I said earlier, the pre-trib, pre-millennial view. Right? So that's a subset of the pre-millennial where they believe Christ is coming back before the tribulation. Only that view would support such an event. And the problem I have with this, as I said earlier, is um, really the problem I have with the pre-trib view in general is, is I don't see anywhere to support this sort of secret coming of Christ. We addressed this a little bit in one of the other Kingdom Come sermons, but I don't see anything to support where he comes to get his people only. The problem becomes whenever this is the primary thing that we hear about end times and that we read everything else through that lens. Right When we've had a rapture theology taught to us as children, and then we're sort of trying to fit everything else in Scripture into that, then we, sort of, we, we come up with some very interesting ways to explain parts of the Scripture. And really, part of that is, um, you know, there's lots of Scripture talking about, like, on that day, the day of the Lord, like, that there'll be two at the mill, and one will be left, and one will be um, 
taken, right? And, and so when we're talking about a rapture, we think, okay, he's going to come get the church and leave the people who aren't believers for the tribulation. When in reality, most, like the rest of the context of Scripture would actually support the other direction, that, that when he comes back on the day of the Lord, one will be left and one will be taken. The one who's going to be taken is going to be the unbeliever as he's doing away with all sinners and, un, like, and the evil as he gets the hell out of the earth so that we can all live forever. So in this process of restoration, he's got to get rid of all those who have not fallen, you know, uh, and bended their knee to Christ and become born again. And so if you, if you actually read the rest of the context of Scripture, which is just a good, um, what we would call, um, I'm blanking on the word, but just as you're reading Scripture, uh, interpretive um, rule is to let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? To not take one Scripture and run with it and build a whole theology, but instead to read that Scripture through the context of the rest of Scriptures. Right? So not take one and read everything else through that lens. Instead, take as much as you can and read that through the rest of it. So actually, it would be the reverse. That A lot of what you see when Jesus is talking about the day of the Lord is, again, two are left. The one that is taken is the unbeliever as they're being removed into the lake of fire and, and dealt with in that way. And the one who remains is, is the, the believers who are left to, to rule and reign with Christ. And so, um, again, you start to see some of the, the, the trouble with sort of the left behind theology. Um, so again, the rapture is really only in that pre-trib, pre-mill view. Um, the other part that sort of comes up is tribulation, right? What is that? Are we going to be here for it? Is it literal seven years? Is it happening now? Is it going to happen later? What do we know about it? Tribulation itself is just a general word referring to the hardships and sufferings that God's people will always have to pass through, right? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. Uh, let uh, no one be moved by these afflictions. You yourself know uh, Know that this will be our lot. Jesus told us to expect affliction. Uh, more specifically, Jesus refers to a time of great tribulation at the end of the age. This is in Matthew 24. He says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such that has not been known from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be. Immediately after the tribulation, Matthew 24, 29 says, uh, The tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark, and the moon will, will give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will not be shaken, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man. And so this language is in, in there. What the, the idea of it being a literal seven years is not a New Testament teaching. Okay? So Jesus, yes, talked about tribulation regularly, talked about the trials and troubles that we will endure in this current age. But the, the idea of it being a literal seven years actually comes from Daniel, where he predicts 70 weeks of years and the accomplishment of God's redemption. And so um, when, when we start to, like, that's where that, that sort of comes from. And this, again, this idea gets emphasized differently depending on your view, right? If you're pre-millennial, then the question is, is Christ coming before or after the tribulation? Meaning, am I going to be here for that mess or not? Right? That's the primary time when we get really concerned about the tribulation. Is, is the church going to be here or is Jesus going to get us out of that deal? And what does that look like? So, the, the historic or classic pre-mill would hold, um, and, and that is probably the most popular and most familiar of those three views, um, it would hold that the church will indeed be here for the tribulation, and Christ comes after it. So I included in your article, or included an article in your app, recommended sources by John Piper, who we hear me quote all the time, and he is a premillennialist. He's a classic, a historic premillennialist, meaning he he believes that Christ will come back before the millennium, but after the tribulation. And he wrote an article, sort of pretty accessible article, on there, defining a lot of terms and actually. Um, 
defending that position just a bit. It's not a huge theological discourse. I think it's pretty accessible. So uh, the book that I recommended on there, uh, Kingdom Come, is, is sort of supporting my view, the, the view that I hold to. So I wanted to balance that out and give you the other one. And again, it's, I, I, it's not that post-mill is not a legitimate thing. I, I, think I, I don't think I know anybody that actually holds to a post-mill view. If, you, if that's you, I'd love to chat with you later. Not to convince you, I'm just interested by that. But um, pre-mill and on-mill are, are the most common and biblically, I think, biblically supported ideas. And so John Piper wrote an article on that. I included that in there to sort of give some balance. Um, so then that, so that begs the question, right, of when does it begin, right? Is it happening now? Is the tribulation something that's going on now? Or is it a future event that will start and last seven years and then Christ will come? And, and that actually, that idea that, okay, there's this tribulation that'll be really defined, there'll be seven years, and then... Christ will come. That's actually part of my, one of my uh, troubles with the premillennial position is that if, if that were true and there was a clear marking of, of the starting of tribulation, then we could sort of start to narrow down when Christ is coming back, right? We could say, okay, it's really, it started here, the tribulation has began, then we can go, okay, then he's coming back. And Jesus says, well, you're not going to know when I'm coming back. So that, that creates a bit of an issue for me, but there is ways to sort of explain it, and, that, and that's, that's what a premillennial would do, but that's sort of the idea of tribulation. So for me, I believe that, that that is happening now, that that is a part of the current age, that there is tribulation happening now. And it's interesting, it's sort of contextual, right? So if Christ came back today, part of us here in America would go, man, what about the tribulation, right? Like, we weren't really experiencing that. But if he came back today in parts of China and parts of the Middle East and other parts, those Christians would go, yeah, makes sense. We've been in tribulation for a long time. Right? I don't know how it could get any worse. Like We're being killed for our faith. We're being imprisoned for our faith. We are going through those sorts of things. So it's sort of contextual, right? Like how hard it is to believe that the tribulation is happening now. It sort of depends on the time, time in history and the location in which you believe. All right, moving on. A couple more things. So the Antichrist. That's, just, that's the, another thing that gets lots of discussion. Uh, this idea gets pretty puffed up and can be really quite scary, honestly, when, when it's sort of ran with. And, and honestly, it gets bigger than it's meant to be when you read things out of context, sort of like the rapture verse, um, and through a certain lens. And, and by the way, on the rapture, I actually explained that more uh, in one of the previous sermons uh, as, as far as like, and, and actually the Piper article does too. I didn't really get into why the First Thessalonians text does talk about us being caught up to meet him in the sky, but there's some more context of that. We believe it's not meaning we're leaving with him, rather going to come back down with him in the way that a, a, a dignitary or a conquering king would be met by his people outside the city to, to champion him, to parade him back in. And so I didn't explain that here. I did elsewhere, and it is in the article. But um, the same idea sort of... of Taking that and running with it and looking at it through that lens can happen with the Antichrist deal. Um, the, the idea that many are familiar with about, around the Antichrist is, is this a particular figure in history rising up as the great beast, right, known as the Antichrist. And, and that comes when we take John's teaching, in, really in his epistles, um, and combine it with Second Thessalonians and the talk of a man of lawlessness and then Revelation, and, and we tie that all to the beast. And we have this idea of this, this Antichrist is going to be this one person that is, uh, that's raised up against the church and that, that, is that, that there's this one and that we're moving into the end times. Um, in short, I would say this. The actual language about Antichrist is limited to John's epistles. And in that, in that context, John is actually talking about false teachers, right? People who are claiming, um, sometimes claiming to be Christian, but, but denying the very essence of Christ. And so John is actually writing to, to combat 
um, false teachers, and he's calling them, those who are opposed to Christ, he's calling them anti-Christ. It just means like opposed to or against Christ being the Messiah. So some of these are attacking different doctrines, that Christ is not born of a virgin, that he was not resurrected, uh, so on and so forth. There's different teachings that, that John is addressing in that moment. But he's writing in response to false teachers and trying, uh, that are trying to, to use the power of Christ while denying that he is himself the, the Messiah in the way that we believe. So, so to say it this way, John's readers in the language of Antichrist have been told that, Antichrist, that Antichrist appear or that its appearance is yet future. But at the same time, they're told that even now, many Antichrists have already come. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2.7 that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In 1 John 4.3, he points out that the spirit of, of, the, of Antichrist is now already at work in the world. Most believe that what John means in 1 John 2.18 is that many Antichrists, meaning those who in the first century were denying the incarnation of Jesus, that those people in John's time are forerunners of the one who is still to come, meaning that they're going to proclaim the same heresies and proclaim opposition to Christ now, like in John's time, and they're going to continue to do that. And any of like those in that moment and any that come in the future are to be like are being called antichrist because they're in opposition to the biblical view of Christ and who he was as the Messiah. But then we get into Revelation, right? And the mark of the beast comes up. And this is a whole, this is a whole deal that's got all kinds of people spinning out, right? Revelation 13, uh, John is writing about two beasts, and he's symbolizing. Uh, two beasts that are based off of Daniel, and one beast uh, represents this huge like military power and violence, and the other represents this sort of huge economic uh, propaganda that exalts these two things as ultimate. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, meaning we must give our all to them, right? And so this is symbolized by taking the mark of the beast on their forehead and their hand. This has freaked a lot of people out. Over the years, I was shopping for a fridge a few months ago, and there was this uh, dented and uh, sort of damaged one at Home Depot that I've been trying to get a deal on for a long time. I go in there and make them an offer. They're like, no, whatever. So finally, I went in there one day to get a, I left, I left the house to get a bolt, and I came back with a fridge. My wife thought that was funny. But I went in there, and I saw that they'd marked it down 50%, which made it $666. And I was like, I'll take it, but I'm going to give you one more dollar. Like, you need to up that just a bit because that's, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want an omen around my fridge. But again, remember the symbolism that is emphasized by John, right? John is using something his original hearers would have understood to communicate a point. All right, so here's the deal. Um, the idea of it being on their forehead and on their hand is actually a reference back to Deuteronomy 6. This is the anti-Shema. So if you're familiar with the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, where God uh, commanded his people to write that, that the Lord is one, that he is like, that they're to worship him only, right? He said, write that on your forehead, write that on your hand, meaning that it should be always on your mind and forming all your thoughts and always on your, like in everything you do. So on your hand, everything you do and everything you think, we should be, the Lord is one. So this is the anti-Shema, meaning the mark of the beast is saying like there's this, power in our culture that is demanding that we give our full allegiance to the pursuit of power, to the pursuit of wealth, to the pursuit of other seductive forces. And, and we, in those moments, can get so caught up in them that we give them all of our allegiance and all of our mind is devoted to them and all of our actions are devoted to them. And so for, for John's readers in this moment, they would have recognized that this is, the, this is a reference back to the Shema. And the number itself 
is significant in that the, the number 666 in Hebrew, the letters are also numbers. And in Hebrew, both the word beast and Nero, Caesar, which is the, the ruling emperor of John's day, right, who had persecuted and killed tons of Christians, who many would believe was the Antichrist, right? And so put the Hebrew letters together, and it spells beast and Nero. And so what John is doing is, 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 is using something that is culturally relevant and understood by his hearers to, to teach this point of, actually, not that there's going to be this one historical figure, but rather that there's always this spiritual force that is informing all sorts of different figures all throughout history, right? So if you follow this, people have thought lots of different people were the Antichrist, right? And there's been some good candidates, right? Like Hitler, nobody's debating that one. Like, yep, totally could be that stash, right? There's, and there's others, Stalin, like, oh, you can go down the list. Like, people would be like, that's him. And there's been different levels of beliefs. The reformers actually thought it was the Pope and the whole papacy in, in general. Like, they, they thought it was that because it talks about him setting the temple of God. And so Martin Luther and John Calvin, those guys thought it was actually the Pope. And there's actually some decent, you know, cases to be made for that. And then others have thought, you know, in more recent years, we've heard that it's different presidents that we've all seen, right? Like, and, and so people have latched onto this idea, like, oh, he's the Antichrist, the end is near, blah, blah, blah. And we get these little circles of people having these conversations, and it can be really disturbing and can get people thrown off guard. What John is saying is that, yes, it should be related to Nero, but not Nero in specific. It's actually just any, like, the, the power, Ephesians 6 says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers of spiritual principalities and darkness. And that those will inform different influencers and different people all throughout history. And so it'll actually come and go in different waves of intensity. But, but here's the, the beast then. I'll just read this. It's more clear than I could probably say it. The beast then is a transcultural, transtemporal symbol for all individual and collective, satanically inspired opposition to Jesus and his people. Okay? So it's all, it's, it's transcultural, transtemporal. Anything... And everything, whether it's a principle, a power, or a person that is utilized by the enemy to deceive and destroy the influence and the advance of the kingdom of God would be considered the Antichrist, the beast, right? That, that, that's the beast, that's Satan, our enemy, manifesting himself in those different ways. So, thus the beast is at one time the Roman emperor. At another time, Arian heresy in the 4th century. The beast is at one time the emperor... Uh, in the third, uh, third, third century, per persecuting the church. At another, it's secular evolutionary Darwinism. In the 21st century, right? The beast is the late model medieval Roman uh, Catholic uh, system of papacy and the Pope and all of that. It's, at the same time, it's modern Protestant liberalism. It's Marxism. It's the radicalization of lots of movements in our day. It's the Pelagian heresy of the 5th century. It's of communism, of Joseph Stalin. The 17th century Enlightenment. 18th century deism. Roe versus Wade. The perse state persecution of Christians in China. The publication of the book, The Myth of God, incarnate in the mid-1970s. Radical Islamic fundamentalism. Angry 21st century atheism, etc. Each of these, this is from Sam Storms, each of these individually and on its own is the beast. All of these, collectively and in unity, the beast. So, will there be a person at the end of the age who sort of embodies and, and consummate form um, all of these characteristics, right, in the many pre previous historical manifestations of the beast? Maybe. Maybe. That, that might still be to come. But it's not the main, it, we're not supposed to derive that necessarily from the teaching. It's not the point of those teachings. It's not the main focus of those teachings. All right. 
So I told you it's going to be different. So that's just like scattershot, random thoughts. Here's the deal, though. Here's, how we, here, here's where we go from there, where we go from here. And again, I didn't get to even unpack fully um, you know, the idea of Satan being thrown. And like, some of the questions that arise from that is, okay, well, if Satan's already bound up and not allowed to deceive the nations, what does that work at power? And I would say this, that, that I believe that Satan is bound in a sense, right? That Christ has exerted authority over him and he's limited in his power, meaning the gospel is going forward to the nations. He's no longer able to suppress that. The gospel is being proclaimed and is going forward. And, and like, so he's bound in a sense, and yet his power, like his like all of that, again, we can get into that later if you want to discuss further, but I didn't even get to fully unpack Revelation 21, but here's how I want to land this ship. As I stated earlier, all of this should lead us to worship and adore Christ, right? Not to some, uh, right, and it should also lead us to a compulsion to share his good news to anybody who would listen, not to despair, confusion, or fear, all right? So the big idea can be summed up to say this, that Christ is the king over all. He made all. He, he made the earth. He came once to redeem the earth. Praise God, we're going to celebrate that in, in Advent, right? He came once to redeem the earth, to give his life, and he is coming again to judge, cleanse, and then restore the earth. So what we really need to do is to know, is to know beyond anything else in your life, the most important thing you can know is that you have trusted in Christ as your Savior. And if you have, then all of this translates to awesome. Okay? You trust Jesus, these details are confusing, but the impact is it's going to be really, really good. It's going to be awesome. He wins, and he shares that victory with us. Now, if you refuse to trust Christ, then the opposite is true for you, that judgment and eternal punishment will be in restore for you. And in fact, it says that's why he waits. There's a verse in Peter that says, don't be fooled because you think God's like just not coming. Remember that to the Lord, one day is like a thousand, and a thousand are like one day, and he waits out of his kindness to give more people a chance to repent. So if you're here and you you don't believe in Jesus, you haven't trusted him as your savior, then you need to know that this is urgent for you. There will be eternal judgment and punishment. There will be judgment and eternal punishment for those who have not trusted in Christ. So here's the deal. The whole movement of the Bible that we've been tracing through this series is God with us, God with his people, right? This was the original creation plan in Eden when it was really, really good. It was God with his people. We broke it by sinning. And the rest of the story of the Bible is him rewriting that. The story's major plot is about this, not about tribulations and, and millennial and beast and such. These are important, but they're not major. The major point of the Bible is God with us. That is the name of Jesus that we celebrate in Christmas, right? Emmanuel. That is the beginning of the book of Genesis 1 and 2, and it's the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. That's where this is all headed. That's what heaven is celebrating, that God has redeemed and rescued man into life, and life is found in Jesus. And one day, that's going to be fully consummate. Like, that's the big idea. That's the big theme of the scripture. So today, the call isn't to go down rabbit holes of prophetic literature and try to put together. Yes, study it. But study it in a way that leads you to worship, not to get caught up to the point that you lose your perspective on what is now. Right? Study it to lead to worship. Yes. So the disciples were told this by Jesus. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. He then later sends them out under his newly established authority. And he says, hey, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Now go. Go and make disciples. Go and bring the kingdom to bear. 
Tell more people so they can be saved. And those who are saved, tell them more and more about my glory so that they can increase in their holiness and the kingdom will come. My will will be done on heaven. And one day I'm going to come back and finish the job and it's going to be awesome. We'll celebrate forever. And he says this. He says, behold, I am what? With you always to the end of the age. That's what we can know. That's what we can plant our hope in and take joy in. Even when we don't understand the details, you don't know if you're pre-trib, post-millennial. It doesn't matter. What matters most is that you know Jesus is your Savior. And if you do, you can find hope in a future that he is bringing. And in a present where he says, I am with you now. And what's coming at the end is not his presence getting revoked. It's not, no, no. It's always about him bringing that to a fuller measure, and it'll be fully consummated on that day in the new heaven and the new earth. So take heart in that. Find comfort in his presence and join him on mission. See him work through you. If you're here and you don't have that hope and assurance as we talk about these things, if you haven't trusted in Christ as Savior, repented of your sins, and made him Lord of your life, then you can do that today. You can be transferred from despair into hope, from death into life simply by calling on the name of the Lord. The Bible says this, if you confess that you are a sinner, meaning you know that you can't save yourself, so you need a Savior, and you declare that Jesus is that Savior, and you're going to turn your life over to him as Lord, then you can be saved. You can be saved, and your story can be rewritten, and you can find hope and a future in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we can be overwhelmed by some of the details, but our hope is that you are good in this talk. You are good in this place, and we, are, we see you as the conquering king and the one who offers refuge. So I pray that that would fall here in this place today and stir each of our hearts to worship you and trust you and also stir us to go and tell the good news so that more could rejoice on that day. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.